Welcome to the Whamacast. I'm your host, Mary Kennedy, and I'm the director of the Wingate Museum of Art. I'm delighted to be joined today by international photographer Adam Ferguson. Adam was born and grew up in regional New South Wales, Australia, before receiving his Bachelor of Photography from Queensland College of Art at Griffith University in 2004. After graduating, he traveled from port to port throughout the Caribbean and Mediterranean as crew on a sailboat to fund the launch of his photographic career. Adam first gained recognition for his work in 2009 when he embarked on a sustained survey of the U.S.-led war in Afghanistan. Since that time, he has worked internationally with a focus on conflict, contributing to the New York Times, Time Magazine, and National Geographic, amongst others. Over the years, he's been the recipient of multiple awards from Photo District News, American Photography, World Press Photo, and Pictures of the Year International. His work has been exhibited internationally in both solo and group exhibitions. He currently lives in Brooklyn, New York, and is working on two monographs, a war diary of his time in Afghanistan and a critique of contemporary regional Australian identity. The current exhibition at the Wingate Museum of Art, Migrantes, is a collection of 14 large-scale portraits documenting the plight of migrants at the Mexican border. These portraits are made jointly by Ferguson and the subjects of the photographs. Adam, welcome to Whamacast. Mary, thank you for having me. I'm grateful to be here. Good. So I want to start by asking you about your childhood and how you became interested in photography. Can you tell us about that? Sure. I fell into photography on a total whim. I had gone from a grade A student and school captain of uh, you know, my grade in primary school to to a disillusioned young teenager that performed really badly at high school. And I didn't technically drop out of high school, but I, I might as well have. And I was going nowhere fast in my, in my hometown. I was uh, 20 and I met a photographer and I just had this, I guess I was looking for something. And I had this uh, whimsical idea that I would go and be a photographer. Um, he, the photographer I met kind of spent the weekend hanging out with me and my friends photographing a skateboarding. And I, I, w I guess I was intrigued by the technology to start with, um, uh, which was in many ways kind of a, a superficial attraction. But um, I went off and I applied to the same art college that this photographer had studied at. And I was accepted. And then I, I, just, I just knew inside myself that it was something I needed to do when I, I went off. But what, but I guess the, I guess the the pivotal point of this story is that when I landed at art college, um, I was introduced very quickly to documentary photography and photojournalism. And I'd never looked at long form monographs before by photographers. I'd never looked at conflict photography. And all of a sudden I was exposed, saturated even with this kind of work. And I felt incredibly moved by it and drawn to it. And I knew um, very quickly that that's, that's what was going to happen with my life. So when you were in college, what, what kind of photographs were you making? Were you, were you setting up documentary projects for yourself or were you traveling or were you mainly just staying right there in Brisbane? I was photographing just, uh, just in Brisbane city, um, wherever I could. Most of my assignments, uh, 
for my university projects, I had the freedom to really choose whatever subject matter I, I, I wanted. Um, so the brief would be conceptual and then I, I would, I, I would choose, you know, how I fit, fitted things into, into that kind of framework. Um, I spent a lot of time photographing homeless people on the streets of Brisbane. Um, I lived in a part of the city, uh, that had a large homeless population. So immediately I felt kind of drawn to the streets and people marginalized on those streets. And I guess telling those stories was in line with the, I guess the ethics that, uh, made me very curious about photojournalism and documentary photography and, and telling stories of people that are marginalized. Mm -hmm. So when you finished college, you became a crew member on a sailing vessel. Um, I'm assuming that was to make some money. Um, where did you sail and what did you learn from that experience? Well, I sailed, yeah. Well, I mean, firstly, it was to make some money. I graduated as a, as a broke art student and I, you know, was applying for jobs at newspapers in Australia, actually, to try and get a job as a, as a photojournalist. But, you know, it was a, not a good time in the media and I just I couldn't get a job. So I flew to the Caribbean and took a job on a 107-foot sailing yacht that uh, one of my best friends from my hometown had worked on before me and he'd, he'd set, set me up with the captain that gave me the job. So I sailed from Antigua in the West Indies th across the Caribbean through the Panama as far north as Los Angeles and, and all the way back. Um, been about three or four months in Mexico um, and I really fell in love with Mexico actually. And when I finished that position on the yacht, I went and lived in, in central Mexico for uh, four months. and worked for a community newspaper and, and photographed with a nonprofit. I photographed a midwifery program there and did my first magazine assignment, um, for, a for a spirituality magazine in, in, in the, the U S but I'll never forget. They sent me a hard copy check, but I'll never forget receiving a check for, I think it was $1,500, which felt like a lot of money to me back then. Mm -hmm. Um, for photographing a pilgrimage. And I was like, I'm on my way. I'm a working photographer. But then I ran out of money and uh, went to the Mediterranean. And another one of my good friends from my hometown that I grew up with was working there on yachts. And he got me a job with him, him as a deckhand. And sailed the Mediterranean for, uh, for three months working on charter yachts. I was a glorified cleaner, ultimately. So eventually, you had your first big break, right? Um, and were picked up by a major national publication. Who was that and what were you uh, photographing at the time that you produced for that project? Well, I think it was, I, I think there was a bunch of kind of small breaks, but when I finished working on the yachts, I, um, I used that money to intern with a photo agency in Paris called Seven Photo Agency. And a lot of the photographers I, I kind of heroized were, were part of that agency at the time. Um, Eugene Richards, Gary Knight, uh, James Natchway, Christopher Morris. Um, and that, that really, I, I developed some very significant mentors during that time and a, and a professional network. So after that internship, I, I moved to New Delhi, India. Um, I got, got a one-way ticket to India and I started freelancing. So that was really my kind of big break, I guess. Um, and I started to receive small assignments and, you know, over... Over the course of a year, those small assignments became bigger assignments. Uh, I self-funded a trip to Afghanistan. Um, I went back to Afghanistan for a second time on a Time Magazine assignment. 
and that was probably my that was definitely my first significant magazine feature. I shot a Time magazine cover story, and so that was that was the big break. So today, your work appears in all of the major publications: Time Magazine, National Geographic, The New York Times, and many other international publications. Are these projects that you pitch to them, or do they have projects in mind, and they recruit you to work on them? It's a bit of both, Mary. Uh, the project that we're exhibiting uh, here um, at the Wingate Museum of Art, that's a project that I pitched to my editor. Um, and I pitch, uh, I just finished a project for Time Magazine about climate change. That was a, a combination of a, my editor kind of starting a conversation with me about doing a project and then me kind of applying for a grant to get some funding. But then also I would just get a random email or a call from a client being like, we have this project, are you interested? I guess the important thing is not whether I pitch it or whether I am assigned it, is that I tend to only take assignments or pitch stories that fit in with stories that I feel ethically aligned with things that I'm interested in, things that I feel are important and and feel invested in. I've been a a freelance photographer my entire career, and um, the beauty of that is I can act autonomously and steer my career in ways that I want to take it. I guess I'm curious about how you're able to shape the the thesis of the content, you know, and and does that happen more when you pitch the idea? To the editor, or are you able still to participate in the formulation of that thesis when they approach you? Yeah, good question. I think that happens more when I pitch the story because when I do that, generally it's a photo-driven piece, and I'm the most significant author of that, even if there is a writer attached to it after the fact. Um, if I'm assigned to photograph for a piece that's already been written by a writer. I think the narrative is is determined and is sometimes already been crafted by by a writer and an editor. Um, so I'm kind of you know filling their their space for art, so to speak. So, but you know beyond that, I think I approach every project uh, like it's my own, and I always look at making work that exists beyond the format of a magazine or a publication anyway. And I think I think the best work comes from from that attitude. Right, right. It seems like that's really the long game, you know. Um and you know, for example, you have worked extensively in Afghanistan um on multiple assignments or various series. The the series The War Up Close you know, um, documents American soldiers in the Tangy Valley. In some ways, that seems like your most photojournalistic work and feels reminiscent of such um, war photographers as Larry Burroughs and David Douglas Duncan. Um, are, are these more photojournalistic than most of your work, would you say? Um, they're very much from the American soldier's perspective. Uh, I guess I'm curious about how you integrated with that group and um, how how that series came to be. Yeah, I think for the first decade of my career, most of my work is, you'd categorize it as reactive, traditional photojournalism, where I 
-hmm. would get an assignment. I would embed with a unit of Marines or army, or even if I was working outside of say the, a theater of war, um, the work is very much traditional photojournalism. Um, I mean, working in Afghanistan, even though I was working on various assignments, I saw all that work as relating together. Uh, mm -hmm. um, all that work was forming one larger body of work in my mind. And that was a, a body of work that kind of critiqued the American presence in Afghanistan. Uh, it looked at isolation and fragility and kind of young men on the front line, so to speak. Um, so they were very much themes that I was, that I was photographing. Mm -hmm. I think over time, my work has uh, focused more on, on portraiture. And the reason for that is when I first picked up a camera when I was at art college, I made portraits instinctively. And then I was exposed to photojournalism and these other modes of storytelling. And I kind of, I started to adopt those ways of seeing or not seeing the world, but adopt those ways of recording the world. And I think at a point in my career, uh, after all the conflict work, actually, I started to feel a bit disillusioned with, with, with photographing war and started to, I, I guess the internet changed photography in many ways as well, as well as Instagram and, you know, the proliferation of digital photography. And I started for myself, see less value in this perfect decisive moment and and i was intrigued by portraiture as a as a primary way of telling stories and i think most of my work since that point has really been portraiture whether it's in a war zone or not that's great that leads right into my next question so thank you um the two series the afghans and bombing isis are very similar in how the subjects are depicted with rich color, chiaroscuro lighting, and, and very few individuals looking directly at the camera. They have kind of a Caravaggio feel to them. They're sort of like Baroque portraits. Um, they're incredibly beautiful, um, but the subjects are quite different. You know, one appears to be a group of um, Afghanistan citizens that, that you've taken pictures of, and the other is American soldiers, is that right? Can you talk about those two and how they are alike and different? Yeah, I, I mean, the, um, the portraits of the pilots bombing ISIS um, came first um, in kind of the arc of my career. And what happened was the New York Times sent me out to the USS Roosevelt to do a, uh, a, a reportage report on the, on the bombing missions. And what happened was I got to the USS Roosevelt and there was no way I could escape the, the spectacle of war and the kind of the, the entrenched kind of top gun nature of being on an aircraft carrier. And I felt the images I was making fell short of telling the story. Um, it didn't matter what I did. The symbolism was so strong because of Hollywood that a guy on a flight deck hopping in and out of a jet jets taking off, they just, it just felt like stills from a Top Gun movie. Um, yet what I was photographing felt so much more complex than that because what I felt like I was photographing was the face of modern warfare. And that is warfare that increasingly will be fought less as boots on the ground, but more aerial bombardments and drone warfare and technological warfare. So I had the idea when I was on the aircraft carrier, it wasn't part of my brief or my assignment to try and get as many of these pilots as I could and just photograph their faces and make a very 
kind of classic portrait and somehow through that um, tell the story of modern warfare. And I, I wanted that, I wanted those faces of these pilots to look conflicted, um, poignant, perhaps even a little sad, because to me that was kind of a counterpoint or a counter narrative to the, the, the Top Gun hero um, narrative that's been so predominant when it comes to fighter pilots. Um, actually, when I was making these portraits, I was with Helene Cooper, the Pentagon correspondent for the New York Times, and I'd bring these portraits, bring these uh, pilots into a, into the room, and they'd sit down for me, and I just wouldn't speak to them. I would just kind of give them uh, space and enough silence for them to perhaps get a little uncomfortable and just kind of stare off camera, and then I would I would photograph. Um, and Helene said to me at one point, she's like, Adam, stop being so you're being so rude. Like you're not talking to anybody. Like, um, but it was my it was my strategy to try and like bring that emotion and this kind of like. Mm -hmm. This, this feel of these guys just sitting there in the darkness kind of looking into nothingness. And to me, that was an interesting way to explore these bombing missions where sometimes they would blow up villages on bad intelligence and kill civilians as well as insurgents. And, mm -hmm. you know, it was, a very, it was a very complex kind of story. Um, I think I use that visual language because I think there's power in referencing kind of religious iconography and symbolism. And... That was so strong in that period of painting that you mentioned, you know, the Caravaggio paintings, the kind of Renaissance period. And I think by using that in photography, um, the work immediately draws the power of all that painting that we have in our visual lexicon. And it's, a, it's an interesting thing to play with. So, the, you know, the pilots look horribly fatigued, you know. They, they just look beat down to me. Whereas the the sitters in the Afghan series look like radiant and illuminated with personality and spirit or you know they they just have this kind of they just sort of glow in those portraits well, what was the story with how you set up those portraits for the Afghans uh i drove around kabul at night time and found people to photograph um now i let me add that some of the portraits didn't happen like that because as the project evolved, I end up in situations where it just didn't make sense to be out at night. But when I started the project, the premise was to photograph people at night so I could just capture people standing in the darkness and bring these kind of faces out of this kind of theater of war um, and kind of highlight these civilians living through this very uncertain, troubled and kind of violent time in their country. Um, so that was, that was the idea of doing that. Um, and again, because I was in the dark, the subjects didn't necessarily know when I would photograph. So I'd have a translator working with me. They were holding a flash. Um, it, the flash didn't have a modeling light. I couldn't even necessarily see the expressions on the subject's face for the majority of the portrait, but we'd just stand there and have a conversation in the dark and I would photograph. Um, and they'd be illuminated by this kind of strike of light. So that's how they, they came about. They're really beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, they're amazing. So in 2017, you um, photographed the young women who were kidnapped and then trained as suicide bombers by Boko Haram in uh, northern Nigeria. The portraits largely maintain the anonymity of the sitters while creating these really beautiful, deeply colorful portraits. 
Um, how did you come to take on this project and what made you choose the approach for that series? Uh, this is a project that I discovered with in partnership with the New York Times writer, Dion Sisi. She was the West Africa bureau chief. And we both, I was assigned to go to Nigeria with her to work on another story, actually. And when we were in Nigeria, we discovered all these young women that had been kidnapped by Boko Haram, trained as suicide bombers, sent out, uh, strapped with explosives, um, and had sought help and managed to have that bomb kind of diffuse or taken off them. Um, and it, 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 we hadn't, Dion and I hadn't seen any other in-depth kind of stories done on this. She'd reported on it in other parts of West Africa, but we felt like there was something to do there. So we pitched that to our editors and our editors greenlit that project and they sent us back. Um, so going into that project, I knew I wasn't going to be able to show the identities of the young women. Um, and the reason for that was there's still Boko Haram operatives in the camps for the displaced and in the provincial capital of Maiduguri where we worked. Um, there's also a lot of stigma for these young women. So even though they've kind of escaped um, and they're back in like living with kind of uh, extended family or friends, they, they, a lot of the girls hadn't told their story because they were worried about uh, worried about word getting out and then reprisal, but also just the stigma of, of what that means. Um, they'd all spent such significant time captive with Boko Haram that they were worried that people would still think they're Boko Haram sympathizers. Um, but, but the plight of these, what really struck me about these young women is they'd, they'd been through such horrific trauma and then they'd showed such incredible courage. You know, they some of them had had their family members killed in front of them, siblings kidnapped, siblings killed. I mean, all their stories differed, obviously, but they all had this immense kind of trauma in common. And I wanted to, in a way, heroize these young girls because they they defied their their programming. They'd been told to blow themselves up. They were mostly young. They'd been sent out covered, you know, laden with explosives, which is terrifying enough, you know have homemade explosives strapped to your body. And then they had, had, had the courage to defy what they'd been told to do um, and find help and, and not blow themselves up and commit an act of war. And I just felt that was extraordinary, extraordinarily brave. So, you know, I, I, I looked at other work that had been made in, in West Africa and Nigeria in particular, and I really didn't want to make pictures that, got, that that reinforced a sense of marginalization for these girls, even though they were inherently marginalized. I wanted to make a set of portraits which felt beautiful and mysterious and kind of dignified and brave. Um, so that was, that was my, my idea going in to the project. Um, this was one of the first times as a photographer, I think, where I, I had, you know, we talked about the kind of Baroque lighting before, but you know, because I couldn't show the identities of these girls, this project felt like a real challenge to me. So it was the first time I very much kind of mood boarded the story, you know, even though I was working with real people because I couldn't see their faces in a way they would kind of become, you know, like visual props in a way. There was no like, the, there was no human elements on the face to really draw from. So I looked at a lot of fashion photography where models faces were obscured I looked at a bunch of painting and I found a, a Belgian photographer, Mikhail Barman, 
who has painted a lot of portraits um, from behind people. And even though you can't see anyone's faces, just their, the simple gesture and the way they kind of, they sit in the frame is incredibly powerful and resonant. And, I, and his work was a big influence on me for this. So, you know, we went to Maiduguri and we met these young women and, and every portrait just came together on the fly. Um, I thought I would have more time than I, than I did, but many of the girls didn't have much time because they didn't want people to know that they were meeting with journalists. So I might have 10 or 15 minutes with one woman and, you know, I would kind of be like, okay, what, where are we? What have we got? And there'd be like a green wall or a red curtain and she would have a certain color to obey her on. Um, so we were, I would make it very, I, in a way, as I became more of a set designer than a photographer in this particular series. I was like, how do we make an interesting portrait? And I'd, I had a few ideas in my mind about, I knew I wanted to do one photo where I let the woman's face blur. Um, you know, I'd seen a Prada ad with this kind of crazy kind of like hood thing on. And we just, you know, I, we just started kind of playing with the, the backgrounds and the, the colors that the girls were wearing to kind of make these make these images. But I think with that set of pictures, the, their individual stories just as a kind of te textual kind of framework really, you know, makes the photographs powerful because their stories are so extraordinary. So the, is this the work that won you the first place with the world press photo? Is that correct? It did win a world press photo. Yes, that's correct. Yes. Yeah. And then you won first place again in 2020. What was that for? Uh, that was for a series I made in, in Iraq um, of young Yazidi survivors who had been kidnapped by ISIS in 2014 when ISIS kind of swept from Syria into northern Iraq and um, formed the, the caliphate. Um, there's an ethnic group on the border of Iraq and Syria uh, called Yazidi. And many of the Yazidi children were, were kidnapped. Many of the women were kidnapped as well and kind of sold as slaves. And many of the men were killed. And I'd actually been there in 2014 and, and covered the kind of this exodus of Yazidi and then this kind of influx back over the border into northern Iraq. And had actually been on a, an, a helicopter crash that was a rescue mission to pick up Yazidis from the Sinjar Mountains, which was their home. Um, so this was a story that the New York Times Magazine approached me to do, and I think they approached me to do it because I had a history covering this conflict and covering the, the Yazidis in particular. Um, so I went to Iraq, and we, we, I worked with a writer, Jennifer Percy, and we made a story about trauma, psychological trauma inflicted by this conflict. Um, and that was mainly focused on, on children. Yeah. There was a German psychologist uh, who was a German Iraqi psychologist that had a bunch of counseling programs in a lot of the, the, the camps for the displaced. And yeah, it, it, yeah, it was a story about trauma. Um, again, I, you know, the stories of some of these children were extraordinary, you know, kidnapped by ISIS, kept for four years. Um, the surprising thing about it was some of the kids that I met actually, you know, had enjoyed their time with their ISIS captors. 
Um, so they've been kidnapped, sold to a family who treated them well and treated them like their own child. And then those particular children would come back to their families. Uh, and now that Arabic was their first language instead of their native Kurdish, and they went from a family that was kind of relatively uh, wealthy to a back to a an IDP camp or you know ultimately a refugee camp, and they miss their ISIS captors even though now they're back with their biological families. You know, their biological families were poor and they'd spent half their life with with other people, so they didn't they it, they didn't really comprehend it like that. So it was a very crazy you know situation of how kids were processing this kind of time away with isis those images are really haunting you know from that series they're they're really uh amazing and and make you think about the sort of aftermath of conflict like that in ways that never really make it into the news cycle you know it's very rare to even you know have something like that so they're quite interesting in a way, these portraits were a uh, a precursor to the the portraits of the migrants that that you're showing here, because this was the first time I think I'd really engaged in, and I didn't even know it at the time, but the portraiture was, in essence, collaborative. So I would go visit a family, interview them, hear their story. Um, and I'd just kind of watch things that were happening. And then after sitting down and drinking tea for an hour with people and hearing their story, uh, it came time to make a portrait. And I would often just ask a subject to reenact something that they'd already done. Like, you know, the, the a child, a particular child will have stood over near a curtain or there was one little boy resin that I photographed who during the interview, he just kind of put his head on his uncle's lap, who was his caretaker, and his uncle had put his hand um, on Rezin's head um, in this very kind of like nurturing embrace. So when we'd finished the interview and it came time to make photographs, I just staged them in ways that they'd already posed themselves. So um, even though they were staged, they had integrity to the way that they'd acted and had integrity to the story. And, um, or I'd ask people how they want to be posed as well. Um, so it was kind of like playing, playing with this stuff. And it was the first time I'd really considered portraiture as a, as a collaboration before everything I'd done before that was me imposing much more of myself as an artist on, onto people. So good. I want to talk about Migrantes. Um, so I'm happy that we're shifting gears a bit here. Um, so uh, it was a series that was originally published in the New York Times on July 1st of this year. Um, I think what makes these photographs particularly interesting is the fact that you have placed the shutter release in the hand of the sitter um, so that the portraits are really more of a collaborative effort um, with, by you with the sitter and not simply you're taking a portrait. So can you talk a little bit about what made you make the leap to that kind of methodology from what you have done before? Yeah, I think, I mean, firstly, there's been a lot of conversation around representation and who gets to tell whose stories, especially in the wake of the Me Too movement and the Black Lives Matter movement. And um, I have definitely hit a few points as a storyteller where I'm like, why am I qualified as a relatively privileged white man to to tell a marginalized person's story. And it's an important conversation. 
And, you know, earlier in this year, in February, when there was this kind of crazy influx of migrants uh, kind of hitting the US border, I, I felt like I wanted to participate in that story. And it was an important story because of the change of administration. Um, but I also, I wasn't sure how to approach that story or what, what would feel kind of valid. And we were seeing a lot of work uh, of migrants, you know, kind of desperate, scrambling across the river in, you know, makeshift rafts or rubber tubes. Um, and it didn't make sense for me to make more of those photographs. And I think, I think those photographs, while they're, I think, journalistically important and they, they serve a very kind of functionary part of our you know, communication ecosystem. So I don't mean to criticize that work. I think it's valid and, and vital. But I didn't I didn't need to make more of it. And I think I think what those photographs do a lot of the time is they inspire kind of sympathy. Um, and I wanted to make work that went beyond that and really instead of presenting the issue, made us feel kind of a deep empathy for these humans that were had undertaken this arduous journey from Central America primarily. So I remembered a I remembered a set of pictures um, that had a effect on me when I was an art student, and they were a set of pictures by um, Adam Brunberg and Oliver Chinarin, and they had made a set of portraits in a psychiatric institution in Cuba, where they gave the cable release to the to the the people living in this so the people admitted to this institution, and there was something incredibly empowering for the subjects and by empowering the subjects instead of showing these you know kind of desperate crazy pe people so to speak there was all of a sudden a lot of kind of humor and dignity and fun in these photographs and simply by handing the the control of the shutter over they'd managed to kind of subvert the narrative that i'd seen around people in mental, mental institutions so I felt like that would be an interesting thing to play with with migrants crossing the border into the US would be to kind of just subvert the, the narratives that we'd seen and present something different and try and make a set of pictures that felt kind of more honest and inspired empathy rather than, than you know, sympathy or demonization of these, this demographic of people. Yeah, I, I do think they're deeply empathetic images, you know, the, um, the depiction of the individual. So... How did you choose who to photograph in these in these pictures? Well, I really just photographed whoever would let me photograph them at the <laughs> end of the day. <laughs> uh -huh. uh, or I would wander around, and there was a few instances, like especially the informal camps where there was a couple of hundred people on the in a park. I would wander around and just I would I would look for somebody, you know, sitting in a spot. Or doing something and some and and just try and find something where somehow creatively it turns my wheels and I'm like that's a picture. So there's a a photo of a of a man washing himself and he's got his eyes closed because the soap's running into his eyes. So you know we were wondering I was walking past the the tap where all the migrants would come to this one tap to wash, and I was like, well that you know I I haven't seen that image. I want to. I would like to make a photograph of, of somebody washing themselves here. This is part of their daily life. They all line up to use one tap. Um, so uh, Linfer, I think, was the, the gentleman's name, and his, his partner or his wife and one of their children kind of came up 
so I, I asked him if I could, if I could photograph him and I photographed him and his wife, actually, um, she's not in the exhibition, but he is. And so that was, that was kind of the process. Um, there's another young woman, Stephanie, uh, who's sitting at the door of a, like a makeshift shelter. Um, you know, I was walking through the camp and she was sitting just like that. Um, so, you know, we, her mother wasn't around, so we kind of had to spend an hour tracking down her mother to get permission. And then we finally found her mother. And then I just photographed her, you know, how I'd seen her originally. Um, um, you know, the, the Linfer image to me was the most striking when I first read the New York Times article. Uh, and I think because to look at him in that image, not knowing that he was taking a bath and that he had soap in his eyes, you know, his eyes are closed. He's very intently gripping the remote control. And, you know, at first glance, it's hard to tell, is he taking a photograph? Is he detonating a bomb? You know, you, you really don't know how to read this image. Um, and then to find out, no, his eyes are closed because there's soap in his eyes. I mean, it was just so startling to me to understand that that was what that photograph was about. I think it's a really powerful image. Mm. Um, and I, I, I think it um, really gets at a lot of issues for those of us looking at images of migrants and how we interpret the content of those photographs and, and what the photographer intends and also what the sitter intends. Because uh, I think that's a very ambiguous image. But then once you know that he's taking a bath, it all makes total sense. And I'm sure he's trying to hang on to the remote and not drop it. Yeah, funnily enough, I mean, my initial concept when I saw the people, you know, the, a group of migrants there washing themselves is I wanted to photograph somebody kind of covered in suds because what they do is they would, you know, they'd wet themselves and they'd lather themselves up in soap and they had all, you know, these soap suds all over them. And then, uh, and then they'd, wash it off so there was this kind of like two cycles of the kind of the bathing process because of the access to the water um but when i went to photograph linfa um you know it all melted so quick the sun had kind of got really bright it just kind of all the suds melted off him so quick and he was trying to keep his eyes open for me and i was trying to make a photograph of his eyes open as well with suds on him but they melted so quick that they were no longer visible and then it became this kind of like you know, I was battling trying to find a moment with his eyes open. And then all of a sudden I was like, well, why am I, why am I fighting this? Just, just mm-hmm. take a photo of you with your eyes closed because the soap is running into your eyes. It just, mm-hmm. it, it made sense. And that's always the kind of, I guess, the beauty of, of working with somebody to, to make a portrait. It's just this kind of unraveling process. And uh, often when you just let go of the ideas that you have and let it unfold, <laughs> I think the most striking portraits can happen. It's an amazing, it's an amazing image, that's for sure. The, um, the portrait of Doris Lara is beautiful and searching. Uh, it reminds me of Dorothea Lange's migrant mother from the Farm Security Administration during the Great Depression. Um, how much of your work is influenced by previous portrait photographers and documentary photographers? Uh, I mean, I think all of my work is influenced by, uh, you know, the kind of the canon of, of documentary photography and, and the canon of art in a broader sense as well. Um, I try to deliberately acknowledge my references. I do try and use techniques and v- languages, visual languages that other 
documentary photographers, other photographers, other artists have have used. I've always felt like the sweet spot is acknowledging everything that's kind of happened before before you, and then using that in a way to position it in now. And it's like never totally mimicking, but the the right amount of acknowledging the kind of work that's come before you. Um, and there's yeah, I, I don't think you can deny you know there's it's very hard to make a photograph which is absolutely original but i think there's a, a a spot of positioning yourself within that kind of trajectory of human creation and human experience where you've you had tilled everything that's come before you just enough and hopefully you point to the future so the portraits of um Teresa de jesus hernandez and america yanira lopez and their children certainly referenced Richard Avedon's In the American West. Do you admire that work, and was it influential for you with this series? Yes, I, I mean, Avedon's always been a, a big influence, and I think In the American West was definitely a book I picked up in my first year of art college, which made me look at documentary photography and particularly portraiture in a, in a whole new way. Um, I didn't consciously, when I made the, the particular portrait that you're talking about, I didn't consciously at the time think that I was, you know, posing it uh, in a way that compositionally felt very much like a, an Avedon portrait. Um, I, was, I was, you know, but after the fact, when I look at it, I can totally see that, you know, the language and the technology, you know, black and white film, the kind of the, the, the tonal density of the background. Um, the, the the position I have placed the camera on a tripod, um, that kind of gaze, it all very much, it's the, it, I'm using the same language that Abaddon used in, in almost entirely, really. So it, it definitely feels like one of his portraits. Um, I would argue that your compassion for your subjects uh, shines through in your work in a way that I don't think is present in the, in the American West series. You certainly put yourself in some of the most heart-wrenching situations on the globe. I'm curious what sustains you through witnessing all of that inhumanity. Uh, I mean, it's always a tough question to answer. What sustains that? I, I mean, I, it's a privilege to hear people's stories. Um, I, I am partly nourished by that. Um, it's It's an honor, quite frankly, to to have people who are in the midst of one of their most significant life traumas kind of take some time out of that and share what they have with you and share that story. Um, so I think that's what sustains me. And I think that the belief that the work is important, people's stories are important, and our kind of evolution as a as societies, whether those societies are, you know, integrated or not is is very kind of pegged on our understanding of who each other are and i think i think that's my kind of motivation and guiding principle it's let's just keep unpacking who we are as humans and the more we can the more i as a photographer i can create work that i feel like adds something new to the conversations about conflict or poverty um i think that helps us get to a better place as a, as a civilization. I, I, you know, the, 
the Magrantes portraits, uh, it, it's amazing to think about these are people who are in some of the most traumatic moments of their life, um, and yet they're willing to have their portrait made by you, a stranger. What What is that process like that that allows people to want to engage with you? Uh, is it is it about the conversation that precedes the photograph and building the relationship in that moment with the sitter? Is is that the pathway to then being able to to make a successful portrait of your sitter? I, I think initially, and this is a, an issue that I came up against, people saw me ultimately as a as a white American or a gringo, and they thought that perhaps I was somebody that could help them or, you know, help with their petition case, help them get asylum, ultimately help them get to America. So that was a, a common thing. That was a regular thing that came up in all the conversations. And I had to tell people um, very immediately that, you know, that I, I was a journalist and I was a photographer and I couldn't help them access America, but I could listen to them and I could tell their story. Um, and even though people were disappointed by the fact that I wasn't going to grant them a kind of golden ticket into the States, people were desperate. And I think when people are desperate, people, people want to be heard. It's kind of cathartic for them. And, you know, I was, I was that person in this sense. In many ways, I, making portraiture like this, it's not necessarily about the photography. It's about sitting down and, and listening to people and, and being a counselor in some ways. Um, mm -hmm. and then the photography is a byproduct of that process. Um, and that the posing or the placement of the camera, all that stuff, you know, all those technical decisions kind of come out of a, a conversation with the people. They're not things that are totally, um, imposed. If that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. so people were very willing to be photographed, um, surprisingly willing, especially the, the image that you just mentioned before of the family. They had been kidnapped for two weeks, uh, chained up to trees, given one meal a day, and they'd just been released that morning um, and dumped at this shelter. And, you know, they had like insect bites all over them. They were incredibly kind of traumatized and distressed. Um, the mother was crying. And, but, you know, she was so distressed that she wanted to talk. She wanted to tell me what had been going on for the last two weeks. She needed to tell somebody. Um, mm -hmm. and you know, I sat down and we, we chatted for about 40 minutes and then I, uh, hung a curtain on a wall and they stood in front of it and I put the camera on the tripod and handed her the cable release and then I stepped away. Um, and then it's interesting, kind of the image that's in the New York times, this, we're talking about America Yanira Lopez, right? Yes. What well, the image that's in the New York times it's much clearer that she's been crying as opposed to the one in the exhibition where, you know, you can interpret that. But the portrait in the exhibition, I think, is um, uh, more beautiful. And, you know, the individuals come together as a portrait in a way that um, I think is stronger than the work in The New York Times. How did you come to choose the piece for the exhibition to be different from what was in the, the article? Uh, you know, when I was editing for the New York Times piece, um, I think I, I think I gravitated towards the one that felt sadder, um, because it represented, uh, her story in a way, which was, you know, then there was a lot of grief, um, attached to that. 
when I started uh, printing for the exhibition uh, that we're having now, I actually realized that um, technically the image that the Times had used uh, wasn't great. It was a little out of focus. Um, the young girl was looking off camera. So I went back to the edit and I looked at them again and um, the one that we printed for the exhibition, um, I felt like there was a kind of stronger cohesion of the family. Um, the mother, even though she, you're right, she, you can't clearly see that she's crying while she still looks very sad. Mm -hmm. Um, she looked a bit stronger in a way, which I, again, I think came back to that sense of, um, kind of dignity that I wanted to put in these and inspiring kind of empathy over victimhood. Um, and I think, and then the young woman, instead of looking off the camera, the daughter at the bottom of the frame, and she's looking directly at the camera. So all of a sudden you had a stronger um, sense of personality from the mother, the daughter's looking straight at the camera and it was in focus. Um, mm -hmm. It just seemed to it's make sense. It's a great image. Yeah, it's fit, a great image. Fit the yeah. kind of, uh, the feel of the others too. A lot of them are, you know, even though these migrants are in horrible circumstances, a lot of them feel very kind of dignified. You know, Stephanie, the young girl sitting at the mm -hmm. the doorway of a camp, she looks almost kind of like serene and happy and she's kind of beautiful. And like, it's, it, it's kind of counter to this, you know, poor migrant crawling through the desert kind of thing that we've seen over and over again. She looks like she could be at university, you know, yeah. I mean, uh, it's an amazing image. She looks so composed and dignified in that image. So have you stayed in touch with uh, any of the sitters? And do you know if any of them have made it to the United States? So when about a month transpired between when I made the photographs and when the story published in the New York Times, so we were able to get in contact with uh, about half of them. Um, and it was a mix. Some people were still in Mexico. Um, three of them have made it across. Um, uh, Carlos Soyas and his son Anderson, uh, they made it to the States. They're in uh, New York City. Um, the trans woman, she made it across also. She was helped by a, uh, by a legal organization in, um, in Texas that specifically works with, uh, with, with trans um, folks from Central America. So there is a few. And then the ones we couldn't get in contact with, I mean, I kind of guess that they must have made it because they're not on their Mexican numbers anymore, which makes me think that those numbers are dead and they're on US numbers. So, yeah. I, I plan on um, doing a follow-up portrait with Anderson and, uh, and his father because that was, I think, one of the uh, kind of most intimate portraits that I made, you know, him and his father kind of embracing and especially because of the kind of physical um, problems with, with Anderson. So I think uh, it'll be really nice to, to visit those guys in New York and I have their contact info, so I'm going to follow up with them. Yeah, the, the vulnerability uh, of the sitters really comes through, but especially in that particular portrait um, and just what a, you know, what a journey those folks have been on. It's amazing. Okay, so um, you refer to yourself as a portrait photographer, but you put yourself into many photojournalistic hotbeds and others might well refer to you as a photojournalist. So what is the distinction for you? Yeah, I... 
I think I think of myself as a photographer or a storyteller. I think, um, you know, I I try and evade titles. I don't I don't know why. Just no no one title fits. What is the distinction though? I think a photojournalist covers issues in a reactive sense for the news and for the media. Um, and I spent a good portion of my career doing that, but uh, but now primarily work at, work as a portrait photographer and. I I enjoy that medium. Um, I enjoy that kind of mode of of telling people stories. I enjoy engaging with people. I enjoy the collaborative nature of it. Um, but yeah, I don't I don't I don't know what to. I never know what to call myself, Mary. I think it's always better to just maybe accept the labels that you're given. <laughs> <laughs> well, I can't help but think about you know um, when you think back to uh, the 1930s and really the you know, the documentary photography that was going on, and you compare the work of someone like Margaret Brooke White and Dorothea Lange. And Margaret Brooke White was very much interested in sort of capturing these kind of gotcha images and, and not really allowing the sitter to compose themselves in any way. And then someone like Dorothea Lange comes along, and she's very much interested in allowing the sitter to present themselves in, in the image in a way that they want to be presented. And to me, it seems that you're very much in the latter camp. You're very much trying to create an image that not only tells the story, but, you know, provides dignity to the sitter and really provides some kind of key insights into the sitter as well as the situation in which they find themselves. So uh, I think it's fairly rich. I mean, I think I mentioned this before, so forgive me for repeating myself, but I, I spent, you know, years working as a photojournalist and I think um, for myself realized that I didn't necessarily enjoy it um, as much as I enjoyed making portraiture um, it, it 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 wasn't my it's it's not a and I was never great at it I was like an okay photojournalist but I was never a great photojournalist and I felt like portraiture for me was something that I just had a for whatever reason, for whatever my own personal dispositions and psychological makeup is, I, I was just a better portrait photographer. Um, and I enjoyed um, making portraits more. And I think, you know, since I have come up as a photographer, the world has changed a lot too. And, you know, I used to love street photography early in my career. These like, you know, captured beautiful kind of moments of kind of light and elements on the street. And Instagram and the internet has kind of, has, uh, has taken the power out of that, that kind of, those decisive moments, you know, to use the kind of personification of, of that. Of that. <laughs> um, and, but, but somehow there's still a, there's a real kind of personal interaction um, in portraiture that, that I love um, that dates all the way back to, you know, classical painting and, you know, painting politicians and, you know, the first presence of America and how portraiture has kind of had this kind of continuous language um, from painting into photography. Um, and I think mm -hmm. it's still a very, a very valid kind of way to, to interact with a, with a human and, and with a story. Well, we're thrilled to have your work at the museum. Um, so how does it feel to see your work in such a large scale? Uh, it, it's incredible. Uh, it, it made printing these 
you know, we printed them uh, four by five feet. They were, I think, I'm not sure if you said that earlier or not. Um, it makes me realize I never want to look at a photo on a phone ever again. I just want to see everything printed <laughs> at four by five feet. <laughs> well, they look fantastic and we're thrilled to have them. So, so Adam, I want to thank you for joining me today. And thanks to our listeners. Uh, if you want to learn more about the exhibition Migrantes, please visit our website at wingatemuseum.org. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Mary. Thank you so much for, for having me. Thank you for joining Whamacast, produced by the Wingate Museum of Art at Hendricks College. Our engineer is Megan Stevenson, graphics by Amanda Cheatham, and research support from Rebecca Jolly. Our theme music was written by Hendricks student Cameron Minor and performed by Cameron Minor, Scott Minor, Danielle Kuntz, and Campbell Cook. All rights reserved by Hendricks College. Have a great day. Thank you.